I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So three months into the Russia-Ukraine war, the Kremlin's focus is now almost entirely on the eastern part of the country. The Ukrainian defense ministry said the offensive was in its most active phase, while Moscow said it would continue until all of its objectives had been achieved. Last month, Russia launched a ground offensive to quote-unquote liberate the eastern regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. Together, they make up Ukraine's industrial heartland, known as the Donbass. A lot of Donetsk and Luhansk have already been under the control of Russian-backed separatists who've been fighting with Ukrainian government forces there for the last eight years. Almost this whole time, people there have been living in a conflict zone. Even more than the rest of the country, eastern Ukraine has always had really close ties to Russia. Most people there speak Russian, many of them are ethnically Russian, and there's been significant support there for pro-Russian political parties. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the Ukrainian government of carrying out a genocide against Russian speakers there, an accusation international observers say is baseless. But at the beginning of the war, it was a bit of an open question how much resistance there would be in eastern Ukraine to a Russian invasion. As Russia ramps up its assault in the east, Ukraine's been warning that there are plans to hold sham referendums in places that have been occupied to turn them into pro-Moscow people's republics or have them join Russia. This week, we wanted to dig into what pro-Russian sentiment in eastern Ukraine actually looks like. How loyal are people to Russia? What's behind those attitudes? And how have their feelings changed since the start of the war? I'm talking to Enrique Menendez, a Ukrainian humanitarian aid worker who grew up in Donetsk. In case you're wondering about his name, he had a Russian grandfather, but he's Ukrainian through and through. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hi, Enrique. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Tamara. Thank you. So you lived in Donetsk between the ages of 17 and 32. And just to give our listeners a little bit of background and correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but in 2014, you started this organization called Responsible Citizens that's been helping people in the Donbass, providing humanitarian assistance. In 2016, you moved to the government-controlled part of the Donbass. And since the invasion, you've been in Dnipro. So you have this long view of the conflict as someone who's from the region. So I wanted to ask you, because Russia has essentially argued that they're rescuing Ukrainians from their own government, how common are pro-Russian attitudes in eastern Ukraine? Um, You know, 
we could easily divide our life between 24th of February and after the full-scale Russian invasion. Uh, before that date, we have a pro-Russian uh, political party, it's called Oppositional Platform, in uh, our uh, parliament, which is called Verkhovna Rada, and it was the second largest fraction in the parliament, uh, consisting of 44 members of parliament. So I was also among those people who was um, having a little sympathy to the pro-Russian parties because I'm Russian-speaking in my uh, everyday life, because I was born under the times of Soviet Union, I studied Russian literature, Russian history in school, and I live in the region where the vast majority of population speaks Russian and have relatives in Russia, so you could imagine how big pro-Russian support was in our region. I've also read about how there are hundreds of people who've been detained under anti-collaboration laws, right? Which, which I think says that there was a significant amount of Russian support. Ukraine has been under martial law since the beginning of the war. The government believes that informants are helping the Russian army underground. Ukraine claims that more than 700 collaborators have been detained and dozens of acts of sabotage have been disrupted so far. And so what are some of the reasons behind the pro-Russian attitudes in the region? Where does that come from? It's uh, very pretty understandable because the people who, a lot of uh, people, a elderly population, which uh, was born under the Soviet Union era, and for them that time was very good because uh, uh, was not such big division between poor and rich people in the Soviet times. For the people who have a lot of relatives in Russia, uh, for example, like, like myself, from nine sisters and brothers, seven of them lives now in Russia. So it's a very close uh, ties, very close relations. And of course, a lot of people are using Russian television, Russian radio, Russian internet websites. They are looking for news because they are Russian-speaking, and that's why they are under the influence of Russian propaganda. Even in these days, some friends of my mother, which are elder people, and they believe much more in Russian propaganda than in what is saying our government or Ukrainian mass media says. Yeah, so... The influence of Russian propaganda there is is really important. And aside from proximity, can you talk a bit about the significance of the Donbass region historically? Like, what is it about that region that makes it uniquely tied to Russia? For the people who are interested in history, they maybe know that it was very important because in the times of uh, industrial development, in the end of 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, the biggest metallurgical plants were built there, coke plants, coal mines. This is the region with the very rich resources. And after the Second World War, when this region was completely destroyed, it was rebuilt from the scratch. And uh, due to this rebuilding, a lot of people from Russia moved to this region to inhabit it. And uh, that's why it's heavily populated with the Russian-speaking, Russian ethnically population. It was very important for Russia to control the Donbass, because Donbass, in uh, the history of modern independent Ukraine, 
uh, always voted for pro-Russian parties. If you control Donbass, it's very heavily populated. So you can imagine how important it is to control this region. That's why the rebellion, uh, which began in 2014 after the Euromaidan revolution in Kiev, was started in the Donbass region, because it was the mostly pro-Russian region. Yeah, thank you. That That's really important context. So you brought up 2014. In 2014, there were two referendums organized by separatists in Donetsk and, and Luhansk on the question of breaking away from Ukraine. And according to them, and I should say the results aren't universally accepted because there weren't any international observers when these referendums happened, but people voted overwhelmingly in favor of independence. And I wonder what you remember about those referendums and, and why people voted for self-rule in, in those two regions. Yeah, I remember that very clearly. In the beginning of 2014, I was an ordinary uh, businessman in, living in Donetsk. The city was divided between pro-Ukrainian activists and pro-Russian activists. But uh, a lot of people, of course, voted for Donbass independence, and but mostly of the people really do not understand what that exactly means because no one explained what that means would be the donbass independent what is with the international recognition some people even thought that it was a referendum for joining the russian federation or maybe creating some confederation with russia So when I was doing research for this episode, I came across this piece about pro-Russian attitudes in eastern Ukraine by a journalist named Mansour Mirovalov. He reports for Al Jazeera, and he's been covering eastern Ukraine for eight years. And when I asked him why he wanted to write that story, he told me it was because he was there when the referendums happened, and he remembered just how happy people were to vote for independence. The number of polling stations was pretty limited. So each and every station, both in Crimea and in Donetsk, looked very crowded. So it created an illusion of this, this gigantic, uh, unanimous, universal support, mm -hmm. uh, because we will never know the real figures. But regardless of the turnout, Mansour says the feeling at these polling stations was genuine. You would never say that they were herded to vote at gunpoint and they were like told to pretend that they are genuinely interested in, in going back to Russia. They were sincere. And I can't see a single one which says no, yes, 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 and yes. Uh, imagine a public school, a bunch of people uh, you know, very festive, coming there, smiling and saying, yeah, you know, we want to break away, we want to be with Russia. Mostly the people who were born in the Soviet era and who were perhaps, you know, teenagers when the Soviet Union collapsed and who remember that the 90s were full of these, you know, absolutely horrible uh, financial problems for absolutely each family. So... The people who are nostalgic about the Soviet Union and who think that Moscow somehow represents the spirit of, of, of communism and the spirit of, uh, you know, the this, this socialist welfare state that just gives away money. 
they, they, they wanted to be better off because at the time, uh, you know, Russia was, was just loaded with cash. Oil money. I came to the polling station to vote for the Republic, for the Donetsk Free Republic. We are Russian people. We came to support ourselves. We are against the war. We are against soldiers. And then there would be like a bunch of uh, ladies in their 70s and the 80s. And they're all happy and they're all saying, you know, oh, we've been dreaming about it for so long. You know, we want to go back to Russia. Uh, you know, we, we want to be able to speak Russian freely. So for a bit of context here, tensions over the Russian language have been playing out in Ukraine for years. Putin has accused the Ukrainian government of persecuting Russian speakers. And it's been part of the justification for this war, for the annexation of Crimea, where the majority of people speak Russian. And it was a key part of the Kremlin's narrative at the start of the conflict in the Donbass in 2014. The most recent development is a 2019 language law that made it compulsory to use Ukrainian in most aspects of public life. And there are people like Enrique who weren't happy about it. People like me, I am supporting that we have to make Russian language as official too. Uh, yes, uh, we have some laws in Ukraine on the cultural sphere uh, that all the TV channels must be in Ukrainian, all the magazines and newspapers must be in Ukrainian. And I think it's not correct to the Russian-speaking um, uh, population. But while there are people in Ukraine who feel like these laws are exclusionary of Russian speakers and were introduced too quickly, Enrique says Putin's claim that Russian speakers are being persecuted is an exaggeration. I could not say that someone oppressed uh, my point of view. It's not a matter of war and it's only Ukrainian domestic question. It's not about the Russia Federation. Being honest, there are few people in my circles and myself, like myself, who feeling like we were alienated by the Ukrainian government. But we see a lot of options how to uh, fix this. But we could not even imagine that one day we will be invaded by Russia with uh, that justification of we will protect the Russian speaking. We do not need that kind of protection, frankly speaking. So looking back to pre-2014, it's undeniable that there were a lot of people in eastern Ukraine who held pro-Russian views. And we've just gone through all the complicated, layered reasons behind these sentiments. There's historical and familial connections, the influence of Russian propaganda, Russian speakers feeling alienated by Kyiv, nostalgia for the Soviet era and the hope that Russia would be an economic savior. But things have changed pretty drastically since then. And the shift can be traced further back than February 24th. For some people, like the people Mansour talked to from Donetsk and Luhansk, the disillusionment came slowly over the last eight years under separatist control. Well, Crimea was a lot more lucky because uh, Crimea was annexed right away and it was flooded with money. The Kremlin did want to create this mini paradise to show everybody that, look, you know, the Crimeans are so much better off now than a year ago. Uh, but in Donetsk and Lugansk, it just didn't work because uh, the living standards plummeted there. 
Uh, I remember talking to people who uh, were happy to be earning $50 a month, uh, you know, and working like construction jobs. Uh, the, the people who depended completely on, on humanitarian aid from Russia or from, uh, you know, pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine. But again, these people kept watching uh, Russian television broadcasts and uh, Ukraine was to blame for everything. You don't have uh, your, your medical drugs, blame, blame, blame it on, on Kiev. You don't have your pension, blame it on Kiev. The, the so-called leaders were simply uh, puppets because uh, uh, they absolutely depended on Russia financially and militarily. What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So things have been really tough for people living in the DPR and LPR economically since the separatists took over. But they've also been living in a perpetual state of war. Ukrainian government forces, with the help of volunteer battalions, have been fighting the separatists. Both Ukraine and the West have accused Russia of backing the separatists with weapons and troops, but Russia has maintained that the fighters are just volunteers. The area's been closed to Western journalists since 2015, so there hasn't been much reporting out of there, but there have been reports from human rights organizations accusing both sides of indiscriminate shelling and warning about an atmosphere of complete lawlessness. Just as a quick summary of some of the allegations, a Human Rights Watch report said that anti-Kyiv forces were abducting and attacking people they suspected of supporting the Ukrainian government. The UN reported allegations of enforced disappearances and arbitrary detention and torture against Ukrainian law enforcement. And Amnesty International said Ukrainian volunteer battalions were acting like gangs and that they were implicated in torture, abductions and executions. I asked Enrique what it was like to live through that. It was not a full-scale invasion, because what we see from the 24th of February, this is the full-scale invasion of Russia, and no one could deny that. But also, I think no one could deny that a lot of local citizens of Ukraine uh, supported the separatist movement, and that gives us the opportunity to call this the civil conflict. And from my perspective, to live in the city of Donetsk from 2014 to 2016, it's like, you know, living in the military zone. Uh, every morning, every evening, it was a shelling, and it was the feeling that you are not safe. 
even in your home, at your bed, because not only of shelling, but because I was known for my pro-Ukrainian position, Ukrainian territorial integrity, and they um, forgive me only uh, because of my humanitarian uh, assistance. Only for that I was forgiven by the authorities and they uh, do not arrest me. But I was under that pressure every day, that they could every day arrest me and uh, imprison me and my colleagues. I was very scared, being honest. How do you think all of this influenced people's feelings towards Russia, one way or the other? The first phase of the conflict, let it say, from the 2014 until 2022, made for a lot of people the situation like black and white. People who were supporting Russia become supporting Russia even more. People who supported Ukraine, for example, people who decided to uh, go away from Donetsk, these so-called IDPs, internally displaced persons, who choose Ukraine, they begin to support pro-Ukrainian point of view even more. It's a big division. I personally know a families in which part of the family is supporting Russia and the separatist republics and part of the family is very pro-Ukrainian. Uh, among our volunteers, there was a family in which uh, a father of the family uh, goes to the separatist joint rebel forces and his one of his sons joined the Ukrainian National Guard. So they actually was fighting uh, against each other. So how do you think things have changed since the start of the war? Are there still people who support Russia? Now it's all came to an end because with that full-scale Russian invasion, a lot of people changed their mind. You know, just today at the morning I read the latest sociology and it shows very clearly that the pro-Russian sentiment is mostly gone because they see who is shelling, who is bombing, who is using that um, massive aircraft missiles on our homes. Ukraine's National Police released this video of people being evacuated from Severodonetsk, an area where they say 12 were killed on Thursday. The Russian military is completely destroying the area, says Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky. It's hell there, and it's not an exaggeration. Everyone sees what happened in the cities of Mariupol at the south of Donetsk region which was completely destroyed by Russian attacks, completely destroyed. I think 90% of houses in that city, with the population of uh, near half a million of people before the war, it was now lay in ruins. And uh, um, uh, what happened in the near our capital, Kiev, in the cities of Bucha, Irpeny, uh, it's a terror. It was uh, uh, rapes. Uh, it was a huge violation of all imaginable human rights in that uh, territories which were occupied by Russia. And of course, that killed Russian sentiment in Ukraine. And you know, our parliament decided to uh, restrict the pro-Russian party in our parliament. Right. So they, they banned the 11 pro-Russian political parties what are your thoughts on a future where Eastern Ukraine is under Russian control? What would that look like, given how many people have left, 
how many people no longer support Russia. First of all, I'm praying to Ukrainian army could give good results on the military front. But if we could imagine what will happen after the Russia says the control of the eastern Ukraine, it would be, first of all, economic collapse, because the territories would be destroyed. Ukrainians are fighting for every single city, every single town, and Russia could take control on it only completely destroying them. So the Russia will need to find a very big funds, very big money to rebuild it. And without the people, I do not know how this will work. Because a lot of people decided to evacuate to the western parts of the country because they feel themselves as the Ukrainians and they do not want to live under the Russian control. Some of the people will decide to return to their own homes if it will be not uh, destroyed or damaged and live under the Russian control. But I think it's not be a majority. A lot of people who are now touched uh, directly by the war, by the shelling, by fighting in the uh, government-controlled areas of Donetsk and Lugansk region begin to think uh, oppositely because they, of course, don't want DPR and LPR to conquer them because they know what this means. This means the lowering of living standards, the collapse of economy, the violation of human rights. Maybe some people who are still support pro-Russia now are very silent because they are not risking to speak aloud what they feel about this situation. But as I said earlier, the sociology shows very directly that most vast majority of Ukraine in all the Ukrainians regions are now very uh, patriotic, very nationalistic. So there is some data that suggests that most Ukrainians don't want to concede any territory to Russia. A survey from the Kyiv International Institute of Sociology this week found that 82% of Ukrainians didn't want to lose any land as part of a peace deal. But the survey didn't include people living in Crimea or in the separatist-controlled parts of Donetsk and Luhansk. There's also anecdotal evidence that seems to show people who were previously pro-Russia no longer feel that way. But it's also worth considering that under martial law, it's illegal to publicly support Moscow. And despite everything that's happened in the last few months, there are still people who believe the Kremlin's narrative of the war. Mansour has talked to some of them. They are mostly the elderly. They blame uh, every misfortune in their lives on, on Kiev. For them, it's, it's a matter of, you know, some very core principles. Uh, for, for them, you know, believing in the Kremlin is as natural as breathing. Mm -hmm. And I just spoke to a woman from Kherson, and this woman uh, was telling me that uh, all the things Ukrainian officials say about the, the killings and the raping and the torture of, of civilians in in uh, uh, the suburbs of Kiev were nothing but uh, perverse sexual fantasies. So even in Ukraine, uh, in an occupied city, there are some Ukrainian nationals who genuinely believe that uh, their own, own government is a Nazi government and uh, that their own government started a genocide of Russian-speaking and ethnic Russian uh, Ukrainian nationals. 
What's clear, though, is Vladimir Putin can't bank on the support of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. While, yes, some of them do still believe the Kremlin, for people like Enrique, whose lives have been turned upside down by the war, now there's no question about where their loyalties lie. I call myself Russian because I have a lot of friends in Russia. I'm the, the person who is uh, consuming the Russian cultural goods. But um, um, I was not a part of Russian political sphere. I, In the terms of citizenship, I am Ukrainian citizen and politically I am Ukrainian. I was all the eight years of war in Donbass. I was supporting the uh, conflict resolution by the negotiation process in the diplomatic way, in find in some way how to normalize the relations with Russia. And I still support in this. But I could not now call myself a Russian after that invasion because it changes everything. Because now the Russia is enemy. And until the fighting will end, I will call Russia enemy. They invaded my country, my country in Ukraine. And I think that in this way, thinks a lot of people like myself in the eastern regions of Ukraine. I talked with my daughter, she is now 15 years old, and she asked me, Father, have I to switch to the Ukrainian language after the Russia invaded? I told, honey, it's up to you. It's not the matter of language. You could speak Russian or Ukrainian, but you have to support our country, Ukraine. All right, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. And our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.